Hey everyone, in this episode, I talk about the China, the Chinese century of humiliation. If you don't know about it, it's really important. This is not going to provide you super in-depth information, but it'll give you a starting block if you don't know what it is. It'll help you kind of get an idea of where some of the Chinese rhetoric or where some of the, um, some of the feeling about the world comes from. And also, I had a really good conversation with a Chinese student who kind of helped elucidate the feeling that I think many Chinese feel um, towards maybe the Western world or, you know, countries like Japan. So good podcast. Take a listen. Let's discuss a little bit about the century of humiliation. So if you are not familiar with uh, Chinese history or what uh, you know Chinese culture, chances are you have not heard of the history or the century of humiliation. So China has a, as I've mentioned previously, and if you just do some brief research, you'll find that China has a cultural tradition that dates back at least 4,000 years in terms of writing, in terms of art, in terms of, you know, various dynasties. Um, I use the word cultural tradition because it's, you know, been under many different rulers, many different dynasties in, you know, thousands of years. It's not like a continuous civilization of, um, of unbroken. It's not like an unbroken chain of civilization, right? They've had peaks and valleys and all kinds of wars and civil wars. Uh, but it has a long and rich history and tradition. And even though, you know, in the United States, if we go back to the 1840s, we were still a very young country. And, you know, we had the Civil War in the 1860s. But China had already been well established by then, obviously, and was going through one of their low points. And it's called the Century of Humiliation. So the reason I want to touch on this is because I spoke to a young um a Chinese uh, high school student who was telling me how important this was uh, to them today. So uh, I'm going to go through some history about this and then um, talk about uh, the conversation I had and how, you know, how I think the psychology appeals to more than just this one student. I mean, I've, I think this is kind of a broad, uh, a broad idea across parts of Chinese society. So the century of humiliation, uh, a lot, it's generally attributed to the start of the first opium wars with Britain um, around the 1840s, uh, where British forced trade upon uh, China um, regarding, I think it was opium and tea. I'm not actually 100% familiar with the specifics of, um, of the uh, opium wars. But the British essentially um, opened up China to trade through force because prior to that, um, China was only letting countries exist on the the peripheries of China, you know, like near where Hong Kong is now. Um, And I guess it's the southeastern part of China called the Guangdong area is where they would let they would just let some foreign merchants and merchant ships uh, trade there but they wouldn't let merchants and companies get into the into the deeper parts of China and they 
kept foreigners very uh, – they give them very limited access and kept them very isolated from the rest of China. Well, the British did not want to uh, – you know, they wanted to get more involved. They saw the potential for trading with the Chinese and so they basically forced their way in through uh, military expansion. So they were able to militarily overcome – the Chinese, and as a result, they signed a treaty with China, which gave them Hong Kong, and I believe the treaty is called the uh, Treaty of Nanking, and that is when they got Hong Kong in the 1840s. So um, it's funny. This is relevant today because it's you know we see all these protests going on in Hong Kong and how it was under British rule, and this is how it got started. Right, it all got started back in the 1840s during the Opium Wars when the British basically said, "Hey, you don't have a response to us militarily, so we're going to go ahead and uh, we want this piece of land, Hong Kong." And they developed it nicely, you know. I mean, obviously, the people in Hong Kong loved the rule of the British so much so that many of them are using. Um, I read a headline the other day that many of them are using the uh, old colonial flag from Britain as the flag of resistance. Um, the British really did set up a good system over there. Like it's very orderly. They're law-abiding and all that. Anyway, so there was another opium war uh, in the 18 – I believe it was the 1850s into the 1860s. And during that time, uh, the other countries were getting involved too. So it was British – uh, the French came in. Um, there were other European countries that were coming in, and the United States also pushed its way through um, in the late 1800s as well. And anyway, the, during that time, uh, I believe it was during the Second Opium Wars, the British or the French or both burned down a old – the Old Summer Palace is what it's called in China, which is a very well-known – structure that apparently – I've read this in several areas. I've read this in multiple publications. I've read it on the Chinese China Daily. I've read it in Kissinger's book on China that the fact that the British burned down the Old Summer Palace, which is like uh, – think of it kind of like – it's not the White House, but it'd be kind of similar. Think about the White House with like a several a few hundred more years of tradition behind it. Um it's like that, and they just burned it down, and I think that the the history of China, they just weren't used to that kind of um, – those kind of actions. Uh, and when I say that, obviously, they've been through some brutal wars, but something about that seems to have stuck in their craw. Now, whether that's artificial or real, I don't know, but that's the situation. So they're upset about that. Japan came in in the uh, – in the they had – I guess it's called the First Sino-Japanese War in the 1890s, and China was defeated. And I think that is when um, the uh, Japanese took the island of Taiwan. Now, Taiwan had been loosely governed by China for a couple hundred years before that. So when Japan took over, then – but this was before the invention of the nation state over there, so – they considered it Chinese, um, but by by you know modern law standards, we probably wouldn't consider it that. But they did at the time, and they gave that to Japan. Uh, Japan also reinvaded uh, China during World War II, and you know there's the Nanjing Massacre where they killed millions of Chinese, and 
basically from the 1840s until the 1940s when Mao Zedong took power, they consider that the century of humiliation. And they call it that because basically China was just constantly defeated. Right, I talked about how in the early 1840s, the British came in and basically said, hey, we want to trade. They said, no, we, uh, you know, you guys can trade on the periphery of China. They said, nope, that's not going to do it. So the British forced their way in, and a lot of other countries did as well. Um, and so from that time to the you know mid-20th century, China was basically on the losing end of almost every single military conflict. And it's still very fresh in their minds. So um, hold on there. Going to put in some ads, and then I'm going to continue uh, with some of the conversation I had with the student. So I had a conversation with a high school student, Chinese high school student, and he brought up a specific event that happened. Um, I think it might have been the Boxer Rebellion, and with uh, within that context, he talked about how. China must never forget this. I thought that was really interesting. I was like, hmm. And he he, you know, stressed that this was a humiliating time for China and they can never forget this and that they um must use this to remember that they must be maintain their strength. And I thought that that was really interesting because I think that that ethos or I don't know if that's the correct word, but this feeling I do believe pervades – I don't want to say the entirety of China because China's got uh, 1.3, 1.4 billion people, a lot of people with different interests. But there is a sense that China was taken advantage of by the major Western powers and that they're back on the rise. And a lot of Chinese I think view the ascend, uh, the ascension of China in modern day – not so much as an anomaly, but a return to normalcy, right? Um, like in the in the Western memory, like in the United States, we have such a young country. And Western civilization as a whole, like modern Western civilization, like if we go back to the Roman times and stuff like that, you know, you can go back, uh, you go back to the Middle Ages, then you go back to the Roman Empire. So you go back a couple thousand years. But um, it's all very fractured, and it's uh, there's you know like you like I said you have the medieval times you have periods of dark ages where uh, there's plague and famine for or there just doesn't seem to be technological progress for a few hundred years, and you compare that with um, the Chinese, which that civilization, the cultural tradition alone is about double what we have of our Western memory. And so for them, they – and also during that time, they had lots – there were many, many times throughout that history of the last few thousand years where they were the dominant empire, the dominant civilization in Asia and possibly the world depending – you know, but it's – it's hard to say, you know, who was doing what back then um, to compare. But in that part of the world, they were very dominant and had at times very a flourishing economy, flourishing traditions, flourishing culture. So a lot of them view the modern day ascension to um, to basically a return to normalcy and a, a, a they're reasserting 
their dominance on the world. And now, of course, it's not that simple because the world is a whole, you know, it's a very different place. You know, the one child policy has really created a lot of damage population wise in China. And um, as I've mentioned before, I think the the one child policy has made it to where their military, um, their military expansion is put at threat, you know, because how many people are going to let their only son die? Right. I mean, how many people are going to put up with that? No matter how national nationalistic you are and how much you love your country, um, you know, you don't want your only son to die in, in war. But anyway, back to what I'm saying is uh, there's a lot of pride in China. There's a lot of um, there is a strong memory that they are coming from a broken past. And now in the United States and in the West, we tend to focus on some of their communist uh, history in the past, which was horrible, right? Uh, under Mao, throughout the um, throughout the 50s, 60s, and 70s, China went through the Great Leap Forward, which was, if you haven't learned about that, it was a total mess. It was a, um, a top-down approach to um, a – what is it called? Modernization – where the government bureaucrats tried to dictate how you know every part of the economy was going to be run, and it was just a disaster. There were famines. They killed hundreds of millions of Chinese people uh, because they were uh, effectively had a totalitarian control over the economy. And then the Cultural Revolution in the 1970s ravaged the country again with people uh, getting rid of tons of old Chinese traditions and culture and art. And uh, just just mayhem. But regardless, for the Chinese, even though those were disastrous moments, they've come a long way and they view the century of humiliation. It's a way for them to look it's, – it's it kind of allows them a lens to view the world, right? Uh, it allows them to view the world through a lens of um, opposition, you know, so you know how in the in the West we tend to view things, or we viewed things previously. Like in the Cold War, it was you know communist first, um, the free world, right? Communism versus the free world. Well, if you take it into a Chinese perspective, they tend to look at it as you know you have the oppressive Western European nations, um, and then you have this cultural tradition of China, which is now reemerging. From its depths, and so China views the Western attempts to constrain it as just as that, as Western attempts to constrain it and to basically humiliate them again. And China is using this to their advantage uh, nationally, locally, to remind people, like, "Hey, remember what they did to us for a hundred years. We can't let that happen again." And I also thought this was interesting because me and the student talked about Japan and how in uh, Japan there was a um, how they he said that you know he he dislikes the China, the Japanese people and I thought that was interesting because I brought up the point that you know I said the modern day Japanese people did nothing to you right like the the 15-year-olds in Japanese high school, they didn't kill 30 million or however many million Chinese people in the Nanjing Massacre. You know what I'm saying? Like the, the, uh, the people that are going about their lives just trying to survive in Japan had nothing to do with that. 
And so I tried to, and I wasn't confrontational, but I tried to bring up some points and say, well, uh, do you think it's fair to harbor this resentment considering that there are kids your age in Japan who have done nothing? You know, like they, they've done nothing to China. And so, but anyway, I thought it was very interesting. The kid was very, um, despite what people may think, he was very reasonable. He didn't go, ah, oh, no, well, we must smash them, the evil imperialist Jap- Japanese. He was very reasonable about it. Um, but you could tell that he was not going to let go of the century of humiliation. And he was not going to let go of the fact that Japan did uh, wreak some havoc on China in the last century, century and a half, and that they're not just going to forget that. So – There is a interesting – this is just something I wanted to discuss. Um, I think it's an interesting perspective. Maybe it's not talked about enough. Um, I think in the Western point of view, we tend to have a short memory sometimes because, um, you know, for – at least for the United people in the United States, really our history is not that long and the last 100 years has really been our century. So – uh, me personally, I mean, I've I'd run into this all the time. I tend to look at the world throughout the through the lens of the last century, right? Like what happened within the last 100 years. But you take a country or a civilization that goes back further than that, and there's a longer history. There's a longer perspective, and it is comes from a different place. So that's what I wanted to talk about today. Um, regarding China and uh, and the East. So I hope you enjoyed. And remember, if you want to look up some more information, check out the first Opium Wars with the British, the second Opium Wars, the uh, first uh, Sino or Sino-Japanese War. Um, you'll learn about when the British took uh, the area now known as Hong Kong um, and how, you know, how China was divided up. And it is true. China really was um, was beaten down for about 100 years. Uh, now, does that excuse some of the things they do now? Obviously not. But it gives you some perspective on where they're coming from. That's, in my opinion, that's what it does. And that is helpful. So um, I hope you enjoyed.